The Football Show on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live on Sky Sports. I'm prepared to end it and I can't. Well, do it then. Again. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should there be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Oh. All right, welcome along. This is Thursday's Off The Ball. Nathan with you on till 10 o'clock with The Football Show. And we are kickstarting a busy weekend of football here on Off the Ball. Tomorrow night we will have League of Ireland late night from 10 o'clock as always on the Off the Ball Twitter spaces. Then on Saturday, John will be alongside Danny, Danny and Johnny. Danny and Johnny? We should go with Dan and Johnny maybe. We can call them Danny if we want. And they'll be there from 3 o'clock keeping an eye on the return of the Premier League. And then two live games on Sunday. West Ham against Everton. Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr will talk you through that one from 2 o'clock. And then same and Graham Gartland will be covering Spurs against Newcastle from half past four. Tomorrow we will have reaction as well, I'm sure, to the draw for the 2022 World Cup Finals. Jonathan Wilson, the football writer, is on the line. Evening, Jonathan. Evening, how are you doing? Uh, a large part of us will be looking on jealously at the draw for the World <laughs> Cup Finals and thinking where Ireland may have fitted in. But at the same time, if ever there was a World Cup to miss, it feels like this might be the one. Yeah, I mean, there's so many issues. Uh, uh, yeah, from a journalistic point of view, I, 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 I mean, I can't believe I'm going to go through this again, but uh, we seem to be in, be being criticised for planning to go. But, you know, as a journalist, you have to go. and It's our job to... Uh, try and explain what is happening there and, and what has happened in terms of uh, workers and if, if any sort of pressure can be exerted to gain compensation for, for deaths or, or, or to, to try and even now um, apply pressure to, to improve conditions, then, then we should do that. I, I, I sort of think the nature of the tournament, uh, it feels like it's going to be pretty sterile and pretty joyless. Uh, from one point of view, from a journalistic point of view, the fact that all the stadiums are within about 30, 40 miles of each other in, makes logistics a bit easier. But at the same time, it's not quite the same as, you know, going from Belo Horizonte to Rio or, or going from St. Petersburg to Moscow. The, these are not places that sort of feel like great centres of football. So, um, yeah, I, I'm sort of approaching this with, with far less enthusiasm than any of the previous World Cups I've been to. Do you think when you get to Qatar that you'll be able to see the real Qatar in any way? I think it'll be really difficult uh, and I think it'll be difficult for, for two reasons. Um, I, I think one is that you know, it will be made pretty hard for you. Uh, you know, there'll, there'll be an attempt to sort of show you this, this sort of manufactured Qatar that um, foreigners going over there for holidays tend to see. Um, I think also just the nature of the tournament is it's really busy and it's very hard to, to find time to, to pursue other avenues. And, and you know, I know that from covering Cups of Nations that uh, where, where the pressure is, is you know, on a journalist is far less. Um, I was in uh, Gabon in 2017 and, and sort of inadvertently stumbled on, on, on a massacre uh, or evidence of a massacre and trying to sort of cover the games and still you know, do the, the, the depth of research you needed to, to, to find out what actually happened uh, in that massacre was, was incredibly difficult. And the World Cup will be even harder. So to an extent, I think the, and I hope this, this doesn't become an excuse and I hope it doesn't sound like an excuse, but to an extent, the, the job of the football journalist is to be there to provide cover for the more newsy journalists to, to try and expose what is really going on. 
So the draw takes place tomorrow. We'll get into the football side of it, but there is a special congress happening uh, in Qatar as well at the moment, and it's been an interesting day. So Lisa Klavnes, who is one of the delegates from the Norwegian Football Federation, the president of the Norwegian Football Federation, was extremely critical of the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar. She said in 2010, World Cups were awarded by FIFA in unacceptable ways with unacceptable consequences. Human rights, equality and democracy, the core interests of football were not in the starting 11. These basic rights were pressured onto the field as substitutes, mainly by outside voices. Uh, among her comments this afternoon, uh, went on to be uh, critical of the treatment of migrant workers who've been injured or the families of those who died in the build-up. They must be cared for. FIFA, all of us, must take all measures to implement change. It is vital that the current leadership continue wholeheartedly in this way. There's no room for employers that do not secure the safety of workers. No room for hosts who cannot host the women's game, who cannot legally guarantee the safety and respect of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, people coming over to this theatre of dreams. I fear our stadiums will be empty in the future if we overlook the urgency of the moment. Uh, the Secretary General of the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy, Hassan El Twadi, uh, then came on stage and basically said that she needed to educate herself on Qatar. Uh, that was after the Honduran FA General Secretary, Jose Ernesto Mejia, said it was not the right forum or the right moment to make such remarks. Uh, it does feel still that it is quite brave for anybody at a FIFA Congress to speak out like that. Yeah, it does. I mean, I mean and, you know, the, the, the nonsense of, of um, Al Tawari saying that she needs to educate herself when, you know, it was three months ago that the Norwegian state TV crew was arrested in Qatar making a documentary about workers. So it's pretty hard to educate yourself when you're getting arrested for doing a basic journalistic job. Um, and, and, you know, for the Honduran delegate, well, when is the time? <laughs> if this isn't the time, when is it? When was it? When should it be? Of course it's the time. It's a FIFA Congress in Qatar just before the draw. It's arguably slightly late, but it absolutely is the time. Um, you know, we've seen Gareth Southgate attacked for some pretty basic and, you know, I, I, I thought uncontroversial comments about uh, concerns. Um, the fact that, uh, I think, is it is it 16 uh, different leading uh, LGBT groups have, have written looking for assurances and None of them have received to apply. I mean, again, these are really basic things. And that, that actually is what is surprising to me, that I think a lot of these issues were entirely predictable. Mm. And the fact that Qatar has not prepared any kind of adequate PR response suggests to me they haven't a clue what's coming. I mean, there's going to be a lot of protests in November. Um, you know, we saw, I think in quite a minor way, various issues in Baku and in Budapest with... Uh, LGBT um, groups, I, I think they'll be ramped up massively in Qatar. Uh, yeah, the, the lack of women's football is another issue that, again, I'm sure there will be um, protests, and there should be protests. And in a sense, if you are going to protest, this is the perfect time to do it, because this is when the eyes of the world are there. Uh, and, and so if there are arrests, or if there is you know, any kind of um, over-the-top crackdown, then the world's journalists are there to report on it and expose it. And, and it could be hugely embarrassing for the Qatari state. But as I say, I, I just find it baffling that they haven't anticipated this mm. and prepared better responses. Yeah, I gotta say, I was 
very surprised by how forceful the reaction to Garth Southgate's comments were, considering he didn't say anything that hasn't been said by hundreds, thousands of people before. And listen, it would be a PR reaction anyways. Is anything actually changing in Qatar as a result of the criticism? It seems highly unlikely, but this is just the start of it. It's going to grow and the pressure is going to grow. And if the anger within Qatar and the organising body is going to grow as well, we could well be heading for some sort of a standoff. Do you see any way, the the talk of boycotts that was there at one stage, do you see any way players can, or not even can, because they can make a meaningful impact, but will make a meaningful impact over the next six, seven months? Or are we just expecting too much of the footballers? Well, no, I mean, I think footballers, uh, I mean, generally, I think we've seen the last sort of five years or so, uh, sports people, athletes have been more prepared to, to speak out on issues. Um, I, I suspect there'll be initiatives similar to, if not the same, as we saw at the Euros with with captains wearing rainbow armbands. Um, I'd be intrigued to see what the response to that that would be. I mean, that seems a, a very minor thing that, could, that can and, and probably should be done. Um, I, and, uh, yeah, I, I suspect that wouldn't be as universal as it was in the Euros because obviously uh, in Europe we have a, a fairly a clear idea of what we think about that and other parts of the world don't necessarily agree. Um but you know, it, it is a FIFA statute that there there, there, there should be um, uh, yeah equality in that regard. Um, so that 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 is a basic thing. I, I, I we whether it gets to sort of wearing t-shirts or unveiling banners, I think fans with banners definitely will will see. And again, how they're treated um, will be will be fascinating. It seems to me you know you, you, there's a big danger. Yeah, looking at it from a Qatari PR, PR point of view, which maybe isn't necessarily the way you want to be looking at it, but there's a big danger for them of a sort of a Streisand effect that the more you try and crack down on on a banner sort of promoting women's football or um, gay rights or whatever, then the, the, then the bigger issue it becomes and, and the, the, the more of a problem it becomes for them. Mm. Yeah, um, it's probably my own lack of understanding of Qatar to believe that it would have been some way else that they would have looked at this World Cup as a way of showing uh, how open and what an opportunity is for the world to come and visit Qatar. But actually, uh, maybe uh, they just won't be able to help themselves when the criticism is coming in. Uh, one other bit of news from the the FIFA Congress was uh, Gianni Infantino saying that FIFA hadn't proposed staging the World Cup every two years. They just explored the feasibility of a change. It's a bit of a back down, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think he realised that uh, he'd been totally politically outmaneuvered by Alexander Cheffer and the, the president of UEFA. And I think it's a it's a really interesting dynamic in a in a broader sense that uh, we were led to believe, and I, I I think it's probably the case that had it gone to a vote in in the you know at, at this congress, uh, probably there would have been a majority in favour of a World Cup every two years, certainly the heads of African football federations uh, who don't necessarily reflect the views of other people within those federations. They they seem very strongly in favour. There seem to be a, uh, a pretty um, large body within Asia in favour of it. But uh, you come down to a basic issue. If Europe doesn't want it and South America's on Europe's side, well, it's not going to happen because you can't have a World Cup without France, Spain, Germany, England, Brazil, Argentina... And Chefferin inviting the common ball nations to the Nations League, I, I think is 
you know, a moment of genius because it brings Comabol on board. And if you have Brazil, Argentina and the big European nations, you can pretty much do what you want. It doesn't matter how many votes you've got in Congress because you cannot have a World Cup without those teams. There was that uh, November night in, was it 1993, which was sort of the greatest night of qualifying for a, a World Cup of all time in a, in a European point of view. Uh, this week, did Africa have its own moment just like that in terms of the drama at the very end that sees Egypt miss out on qualification, Nigeria aren't going, Algeria aren't going to be there? Uh, it was just insane what was going on on Tuesday night. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I, I suppose there's sort of three things to be said about that. So one is, this format is ludicrous. <laughs> you, know, you can't have um, years building up to a World Cup decided by a single two-legged tie. I mean, I feel incredibly sorry for Algeria that, yeah, there's no doubt in the last three years they've been the best team in Africa by a million miles. Yeah, they've gone 30, 34, 35 games unbeaten going into the Cup of Nations. And then somehow they failed to score in that opening game of the Cup of Nations against Sierra Leone. And they, they sort of <laughs> seem to have some complete sort of psychological breakdown as a result of that. They, they lose Equatorial Guinea, they get hammered by uh, Cote d'Ivoire. So they go out in the group stage and sort of the, the hangover from that carried over. And those the two games against Cameroon, they were the better team for... I mean, it went to, went to extra time, so what's that, 210 minutes. They were the better team for, I would say, 208 minutes out of 210. <laughs> Which is miles better. Couldn't score, couldn't score. Had two goals ruled out. So they win the first leg 1-0, which is the first time they'd ever beaten Cameroon in a competitive game. And you, and that was the, in Yaoundé. Sorry, in Duala. It was in, in Cameroon. Um, so you think, oh, okay, they, they, they've, they've cracked this. Get it back to, um, uh, to Blida, back, back to Algeria. Just totally on top. Concede the softest goal from a corner, goalkeeper just dropping the ball to Cheaper Motting. Um, it's one of those goals that goes in and the stadium falls so silent and everybody looks so confused. You sort of think, oh, it's going to be ruled out for something. There's something wrong about that. It just didn't look right. And even now he's, he's, he's given it because no reason not to give it. And two goals ruled out. Uh, one of them for you know, an offside that they, it, was, it was tight, but it was offside. One of them for a, a pretty controversial handball. And then it, two minutes from the end of extra time, they finally score. The place goes berserk. You think, oh, they, they have made it. And then four minutes into <laughs> added time at the end of the second half of extra time, just a simple ball in the box, headed down. Toko Kambe, little sort of hooked volley. And, and it's Cameroon who go on away goals. And Algeria <laughs> have gone out on away goals. So... The format is 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 incredible. I mean, it sort of creates this drama, sort of artificially. So that that was it was. I mean, it was brilliant to watch, and it's obviously brilliant for Cameroon. But I think it does expose the issue that that, that CAF have with with this format. And the reason they've got the format, uh, you, you know, they have uh, ten groups of four. The winners of those groups go through to, to these knockouts. Yeah, effectively knockout ties. Uh, the reason for that is they can't have bigger groups because they haven't got space in the calendar because they're having a couple of nations every two years to have, you know, an eight-team group or a six-team group, which might sort of produce a more consistent uh, result. Uh, so that was hugely dramatic. You had um, Senegal beating Egypt on penalties, uh, which I think they, I mean, it, it was pretty unpleasant, the... 
Uh, you've probably seen the footage of the laser pens mm. uh, being shot at the Egyptian keeper and the, the, the Egyptian. Uh, was that a, a was takers. that a coordinated incident? Was was this something that was pre-planned? Um, I mean, it looked like it. <laughs> it looked like hundreds of laser pens. I mean, it's been, I've seen it before in African football, uh, but normally it's sort of three or four. Whereas this was, I mean, they must have been selling them outside the ground. So uh, it, it's, I mean, coordinated. I'm, I'm not sure there's somebody there sort of triangulating the, the beams, but oh. there was definitely sort of a, a, a lot of those laser pens. Um, so, that, yeah, that felt pretty unfair. On the other hand, you know, Egypt sort of constantly spoiled, constantly going down injured. Um, it's it's not easy to have sympathy with, with Egypt, even if the laser pen thing is a yeah it's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And Senegal were much a better team, and certainly in the second leg, um, one nil down for first leg, equalised early on, couldn't get the second, but they they went through on penalties. Yeah, Ghana going through in you know, actually a really poor quality game against Nigeria, then the riot afterwards. Um, you had Tunisia sort of grinding out a nil nil at home to Mali having won the first leg one nil. So, you know, them going through. Morocco, the team who went through most com- most comfortably, uh, five to an aggregate into DR Congo. But the likelihood is their coach, Baidal Hodzic, that yet again, um, he's going to be sacked before the tournament. So this is the fourth time he's got a team through World Cup qualifying. But the only one he's actually managed in the finals is Algeria with both uh, Cote d'Ivoire and with Japan. He managed to fall out with enough people to be sacked. He's fallen out with Hakim Ziyech, which is why Ziyech isn't in the squad. He's fallen out with pretty much everybody else. He's incredibly unpopular. So, yeah, I think it's a matter of time before before he's replaced. So, three times. How does he keep getting the gigs in the first place? Well, because he keeps getting them to the World Cup. (laughs) So, he's, um, I mean, he's a fascinating bloke. He's... um, uh, I see sort of it's very easy now to forget what a great player he was. He scored loads of goals in France um as a you know as a as a player. Uh he must be, I don't know, about 60 now. The, the, the sort of a famous anecdote that's always wheeled out about him is uh, you know, he's, he's a Bosnian, he was in Sarajevo during the siege, and he managed to shoot himself in the arse like while trying to prepare like gone to defend himself. Um, but he's just sort of very um very stringent. And I think in the short term it works. He gets players organised, gets them motivated. He gets rid of people who aren't committed, and in the longer term, he it's just too much. He he he, you know, he just falls out with. I mean, if, you know, if you're if you're falling out with the Japanese, uh, given how sort of stringent Japanese football is and how much you know it's the coach's word goes, then you, you've probably you've probably gone too far. Is Africa been hard done by still just getting the five places? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think this is a. It's um, it's it's it's, it's the, the sort of horse trade over how many places do you get. I think it's always very difficult. I mean, you can look at it in one sense and say, well, there's 55 member nations of CAF. The fact that only five of them get to a World Cup, that's you know an 11th. Whereas in say Commonwealth, you're four and a half out of ten. So four plus a playoff place. So realistically, it's almost always five out of ten. Yeah, there's a half that that looks on the face of it unfair. But if you actually look at the record, um, so the last three tournaments, uh, there were six African teams in South Africa, five in Brazil, five in Russia. Of those sixteen, only three made it through the group. Whereas uh, I think it was five, six, and five with with the Commonwealth teams. I think thirteen of those sixteen have made it through. So I think 
you know, until African teams start performing at the tournament, there's not really a justification to increase the, the number of slots. Obviously, it will be increased for 2026 because the, the tournament's expanding to, to 48 teams. And, and so, yeah, there's a bit more wriggle room there, particularly given Commerble, obviously, you're not going to get all 10. So that, that does create you know, a great proportion for, for Africa. But realistically, they, they haven't done enough, I think, at major tournaments to, to suggest that they, 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 they deserve an increase. Um, I, yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is one of my hobby horses, but I don't, I don't understand why the last phase of qualifying has to be regionalised. I think it would make much more sense to, to, to globalise it and have you know 60 teams going down to 30 or 31 uh, depending how many hosts you have uh with a with a global competition and that would a take the game around the world far more so you'd have your brazils your argentines your germany's your france's going to africa going to asia going to to oceania um and you would then you know, actually have uh you know the, the 32 or 48 whatever it turns out being uh, something more approximating to, to the best teams in the world rather than you know, slightly artificial trying to spread it out. Uh, the end result obviously is that Mo Salah won't be at the World Cup. I don't know if it'll have any impact on his future at Liverpool. He'll obviously have a month off in the middle of next season and maybe means he's uh, suddenly fresher than all the other best players in the Premier League when it returns after the Christmas. It, it's suddenly becoming very real though that Mo Salah could leave Liverpool. Like We are now entering the period where I think a lot of Liverpool fans felt, ah, this is how FSG work. It's done behind the scenes and there'll be a Friday evening, five o'clock. It's done and everyone moves on with their lives. But the numbers that are coming out seem so huge on Salah's side that there's every possibility that FSG don't blink here, don't give them what they want, don't want to upset their entire wage structure. And Salah, who, you know, arguments can be made that is the best player in the world right now, could potentially even leave this summer. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that is a serious possibility. If, if they if they got a serious offer this summer, I think they would they would definitely consider it. Um, I, I I think I mean I, I, I FSG have been I think very good in keeping keeping Liverpool competitive, Manchester City on a much smaller budget. So I think it's something like two hundred twenty million pounds net on just on transfer spending. Never mind on on wages over the last five years. Uh, so two hundred twenty million pounds less. The, the Liverpool have spent in City, so I, I think I think they deserve huge credit for that, and I, I can see completely why they don't want to jeopardise that that uh, that prudence and, and that sort of careful husbandry by giving him four hundred grand a week, three hundred grand a week, whatever they could settle on, because obviously then that, that has an inflationary impact on everybody else's wages, and you know he is uh, you know on, on the cusp of thirty, so. I'm sure he's looked after himself. He looks perfectly fit, but you know, two, three, four, five years, he, he's he's drawing towards the end. I think we've seen with Arsenal the dangers of giving players aged, you know, thirty, thirty-one, giving them extended contracts. Um, and I, I think it's it's reasonable to say will Salah be as effective a player away from Liverpool. Yeah, I think he's in a system that really suits him, both in the way that whether it's Jota or um, Firmino, the way they drop deep to create space from the way he's got Alexander Arnold going outside him, just the nature of that that pressing game. I think it's perfect for him. Uh, you know, we've we've seen him playing for Egypt being far far less effective in a different system. Now, obviously, national football is is different, but you look at realistic suitors for him. Uh, 
PSG maybe if Mbappe leaves, well, yeah, PSG don't play in a coordinated way at all. You know, we we know it's us seven men sit deep, three three up front. So he's going to have nobody sort of going outside him. You know, he's, he's certainly not going to have players getting out of the way to create space for him, you know, given the nature of the, you know, the egos in that front three. Um, or you know, potentially Juve, well, Allegri's football, it isn't that hard pressing. Um, he doesn't really have a fullbacks getting forward the way that Liverpool's fullbacks do. So, you know, I think from Salah's point of view, you know, I, I get it's probably going to be his last big contract. I, I get that yeah, he wants to maximise that and he's got every right to do that. As you say, on, on form, he's arguably the best player in the world. He's certainly one of the best sort of five, ten players in the world. So I, I get the argument entirely. He should be should be paid commensurate with that. On the other hand, Liverpool's been very good for him. And when he looks back on his career in 20 or 30 years, will he want the last three or four years to have been, ah, oh, well, I made a load of money there. Or would he want it to be, yeah, I won a couple of Champions Leagues and I won another Premier League and I was absolutely adored by by a fan base who you know, I'd had a good relationship with for, um, well, when did he arrive? 2015, so we'll be getting on for 10 years. And I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that, that, that some players still, still would uh, take the latter view. How do you think Jurgen Klopp would deal with his departure? He's rarely if ever criticised FSG and you talk about how they've managed to sustain uh, a competitive relationship with Manchester City like that's come largely from the brilliance of, of Klopp and how he's managed to get the best out of those players like having the best player in the league taken away from him because they won't match his salary he, does, does he take that well? Does he, does he accept that well, this is how the club operates? Like, I, would, I would hope that, that those conversations are going on now I would hope that Klopp is involved in the discussions on yeah, you know, both FSG saying to him, "Look, realistically, this is how far we can go because you know if, if we give him three hundred, and he's going to want this, he's going to want that, he's gonna, and and then suddenly we, you're not going to be able to sign a, a player for forty million quid next year." Um, and, and equally, I would hope he'd be able to say, "Look, we we desperately need to keep hold of him," uh, or yeah, actually, you're right. I think there is a limit beyond which we don't go, and, and the fact that. They brought in Luis Diaz and he settled so quickly. I think that has, has actually really weakened Salah's uh, bargaining position. That Liverpool have shown that um, other players can come in, they can thrive. Now, obviously, Diaz hasn't done anything like what Salah's done yet, but there are signs other players can come into that system and they they they, they can thrive. So I, I sort of think the nature of um, the, the nature of football for, for managers who who are at clubs for a long time is they 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 understand there's a need to refresh. They understand there's a need to renew. I think Liverpool historically have been very good at that. If you you know think when in '77 when Keegan left and they brought in Dalglish, who you know in '77 I'm, I'm sure it seemed incredible that they could upgrade on Keegan and yet somehow they did. Um, yeah, Bob Pace he was was absolutely ruthless in 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 moving players on when he we felt they'd served their purpose. Uh, so I think Liverpool have a sort of a cultural memory that, that this can be done. Um, and I, I think Klopp must understand that, that realistically one of the fabled front three has to leave in the next year or two because they're all over 30. He he may prefer to be one of the other two, but you know if it turns out to be Salah, well, he's got Diaz and he probably saves a bit of money and maybe they can reinvest that, that elsewhere. The fact Shot has come in and has done so well as a sort of replacement for Firmino, yeah, again, it, it shows it is possible to, to replace those those component parts. Jonathan, great to talk to you as always. 
Cheers, thank you.